Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast, Tropics, and the newly launched Sunburst Chico, are now offering free overnight shipping on domestic orders of $1,000 or more. All California orders ship free. Berkeley Yeast, ordinary yeast made extraordinary. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. No alcohol, low alcohol beer. How to answer to this global trend? Discover Saf Brew LA01, a Saccharomyces Chevalier yeast specifically selected for the production of NABLAB. This yeast assimilates simple sugars, glucose, fructose, and sucrose, and is characterized by a subtle aroma profile. Want to learn more about Fermentus's no-alcohol, low-alcohol solution? Visit www.fermentus.com. There's a big difference between gluten-free and gluten-reduced. Our ethos is we're trying to make beer for beer drinkers, and it's going to be gluten-free. So it's going to be 100% gluten-free beer that is for our craft beer and traditional beer drinkers. This week on the show, 100% adjunct brewing and a dedicated, certified gluten-free brewery. I'm Alan Windhausen from Hall Daily Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. The topic of gluten-free and gluten-reduced beer has come up on several other episodes. We did a deep dive on naked oats on episode 70. We looked at a microbial process to reduce gluten on episode 94. We heard about Kabari on episode 112, and Joe Casey told us all about omission on episode 202. Holidayly Brewing has a different story to tell. Give us some background and tell us what's special about the beer you make. Yeah, so Hall Daily Brewing came out of our owner, Karen Hertz, um, her struggles with gluten after having had two bouts with cancer. Uh, She developed a disorder that is related to other ones, um, but this disorder meant that she could not have any gluten anymore. Uh, This was particularly problematic for her because she worked at Coors at the time. Oh, wow. And she also (laughs) was really big into tailgating for the Broncos. uh, (laughs) And she was very into skiing. And so it was hard to throw a couple of cans into her ski jacket and have them up the lift. 
Um, it was hard for her to tailgate because she was limited basically to hard alcohol, and she couldn't really participate in any of the co-worker events at Coors. Um, so beer was pretty central to her life, and it was all of a sudden taken away um, due to some medical issues. So she started looking around to see what gluten-free options there were for her. And at the time, it was mostly uh, syrup-based gluten-free beers. Um, and that was mainly going to be sorghum syrup, but could have been some other ones too. There were some brown rice syrup beers and stuff like that. And they were beer-like, but they weren't really beer. Um, so she started looking into it some more. And around the same time, there was a new malt house that was opening up in uh, Colorado, just outside of Fort Collins. There's a malt house that was being opened by Twyla Souls that's called Grouse Malt House, and it's a dedicated gluten-free malt house. And what that meant was there was going to be gluten-free malts to make gluten-free beer with, um, really one of the first times this was available. There's another gluten-free malt house out in California that's dedicated as well. Uh, they specialize in rice. Uh, Grouse specializes in buckwheat and millet. Um, so she started talking to some brewers and started developing a process to make gluten-free beer using gluten-free malts. And she was able to make a product that was much uh, not only much more kin to beer, but it was actually beer that was wholly gluten-free. So we like to say that um, back in the 80s and 90s, when there were some experimental gluten-free beers, those were really products that were like beer. This is beer that is gluten-free. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And so she she kind of really went down that road in part because she had tried some of those uh, gluten-reduced beers, and they ended up putting her in the hospital overnight. Um, so there's a big difference between gluten-free and gluten-reduced in terms of what people are actually responding to when they have a medical issue that needs gluten-free versus being gluten-sensitive or anything like that. That's a heck of a story. What was the timeline on all that? So w w when did you guys open and you know when, when did this, this kind of all start happening? Yeah, um, we opened in 2016, and uh, Grouse Malt House opened a year or two before that. Um, so it's all fairly recent in the brewing industry that people have really been able to do this kind of beer. Um, when we opened, we were the third dedicated gluten-free brewery in the nation, uh, and now there is somewhere between 15 and 18, uh, depending on when this comes out. Um, so yeah, there's a few of us out there now. That's cool. I bet Grouse was happy to hear about you guys. Oh, yeah. No, it's so <laughs> super helpful for us, too, because they're in Colorado. Uh, yeah. So we're able to get the, the shipping just down the highway. You know, Alan, I haven't been following the rules around gluten-free labeling closely, so I don't know if anything has changed since we discussed this topic most recently with Joe Casey two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Give us the rundown. What are some of the important definitions, rules, and testing concerns for gluten and beer? Yeah. Um, so things have changed a little bit, not so much since um, the previous podcast, but things have changed really since 2020. Uh, there were, used to be, back in, I think it was 2012, uh, the FDA and the TTB put out rulings about gluten in fermented products. Uh, and that the TTB was focused more on beer, the FDA a little bit more generally. 
One thing that's a little different is the definitions are such that the FDA is really more in charge of truly gluten-free products uh, because the TTB's definitions, depending on what exactly you're talking about, sometimes beer is defined as barley malt based. Um, so the FDA takes a little bit more of a lead in gluten-free brewing than in other types of brewing. Um, but for gluten-free, the main concern really is going to be coming from the grains that are used. So for gluten-free, you can't use barley, wheat, or rye, as well as some of the other experimental grains that are coming out uh, because they do contain gluten or gluten analogs. The tricky thing with gluten is it's really a family of proteins that people are concerned about. There's over 300 gluten-containing proteins. Uh, but really what gluten is defined as um, kind of changes based on what you're really trying to describe. For most people who have celiac or Hashimoto's disorder or are gluten-sensitive, really what they're trying to say is these uh, proteins are ones that have a site that I'm going to react to. For celiac and Hashimoto's, it's going to be an immunogenic response. So there's portions of that protein that their immune system is going to respond to particularly. Um, and that's why even some things like oats, there's related proteins that are not really gluten, but a certain portion of people with celiac even respond to oats, even if they're quote-unquote gluten-free oats. Um, so that's really the main thing that you just need to be able to remove from gluten-free brewing is any of those uh, grains or cereals. Uh, hops are naturally gluten-free. Water is naturally gluten-free. And yeast is naturally gluten-free. The tricky thing with yeast, though, is most yeast that's being propagated is going to be propagated on barley. Uh, barley extract or barley syrup or something. Because yeast is so perfectly made to make beer from barley, it has changed and evolved to become basically um, the perfect food source for yeast is barley. Uh, so in order to do gluten-free brewing that's truly gluten-free, uh, we can't use a lot of the liquid yeasts that are out there. Um, and we can't even use some of the dry yeasts that are out there either if they're raised on barley. Uh, so yeast is another concern for truly gluten-free brewing. Uh, so you just have to be able to make sure that the yeast is either raised on a non-barley or non-wheat um, food source, as well as uh, for us, because we are certified gluten-free, we actually need to test all of our yeast as well, because that has been identified as a possible source of uh, contamination. So do you end up growing up most of your yeast yourself in that case, or do you work with suppliers to change their process you know, specifically for you, or how does that work? For the most part, we work with suppliers. There's actually a few dry yeast manufacturers that do raise their yeast on gluten-free media. Okay. Um, and for that, that's easy enough for us to maintain our certification because it has gluten-free stamped on the label. Right. Uh, then there's other suppliers. Um, there's one here in Golden, Propagate Labs. They actually have had enough interest from sake uh, manufacturers that they have dedicated a one propagation vessel to be gluten-free and they use sorghum for that vessel and we're able to uh, get one-off yeast uh, propagated there just because it's a dedicated vessel that we know is going to be safe okay um i feel like i hijacked you a little bit there is there anything else you wanted to say about sort of you know definitions and terms or, or testing of gluten i guess it might be worth calling out sort of um you know, specifically the difference between gluten-free and gluten-reduced uh, for one. 
So the big difference between gluten-free and gluten-reduced is gluten-free is made from ingredients that have all been shown to be gluten-free from the get-go. So that means that all of the ingredients themselves are also testing below that 20 parts per million that people are more familiar with. With gluten-reduced, you are showing that the finished product is below that 20 parts per million. But one of the big changes over the last few years is uh, the TTB and the FDA have kind of changed what they consider acceptable for that testing. Uh, the FDA is a little bit more in charge with gluten-free because of how definitions are. Uh, for the TTB, some of their definitions for beer include barley malt. So depending on what you're looking at and what you're talking about, they might not actually consider gluten-free beer to be in their purview, whereas the FDA considers all foods, including beer, to be in their purview for food safety. Um, And so the TTB has just kind of copied the FDA's rulings on that. Uh, The most recent ruling does reiterate that if you're going to be doing a gluten-reduced beer, you need to have a content warning on there similar to the Surgeon General's warning that says that this product was made from grains that contain gluten and it was processed to remove or reduce that gluten, but that the gluten content cannot be verified and this product may still contain gluten. That needs to be on any of these beers that are quote-unquote crafted or to remove or reduce or anything with that. Um, and that and that's, that's primarily the folks that are using enzymes to reduce whatever gluten is present, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the main issue with doing that, though, is the gluten actually doesn't go anywhere. It's still in the beer. It's just the protein has become smaller. And given that there's over 300 different kinds of uh, proteins that could be considered gluten— Really, what they're concerned about is what part of that protein or those proteins are people having an immune response to in the case of like celiac or Hashimoto's disorder, or for gluten sensitive people, it's they're reacting to portions of those proteins. They're not necessarily reacting to that one site that the enzyme spliced to quote unquote reduce it. Right. Um, so if that particular site was one of these immunogenic sites, then yeah, that would reduce the immune response. But if it was anywhere else on the protein, then it's not going to reduce it at all. And that's why people with celiac, Hashimoto's, and other um, situations, that's why they still react to gluten-reduced beer. They might just not react as harshly to begin with, but a lot of these disorders and diseases are progressive. So the more you're exposed to gluten, even at a reduced state, the more sensitive you become. So people over years might be able to tolerate those beers less and less if they're able to tolerate them at all. Um, So not only is there gluten-reduced and gluten-free beer, but there's also a couple additional levels that people talk about. Uh, One is dedicated gluten-free, and that means that you're doing gluten-free beer from gluten-free ingredients on a system that's dedicated to gluten-free beer. Uh, The main reason to do something like that would be to reduce the risk of cross-contamination. Um, one big issue with gluten is it's very easy to transfer it to a product and even through boil, it's still able to get all the way into the finished product. So just doing heat treatment doesn't work. And even, uh, some of the typical caustic and acid treatments that we use to clean vessels might not be enough. The way that a lot of people who are gluten-free 
I'm into gluten-free brewing view it is similar to how you would view like Britannomyces or sours in a brewery. You want to be doing an extended cleaning on all of your metal and surfaces, and you want to be having separate hoses and soft materials just to really reduce that risk of cross-contamination. Um, but there's a few things you just can't clean to that degree. One of which is the mill and the, uh, the auger systems for transporting the grain, you can never get those really clean enough. Um, so that's why there's an importance of having dedicated gluten-free systems. Uh, for a lot of people who are not using dedicated gluten-free systems, they will have those separate soft components and then get their grain pre-milled. And then even on top of that, there's the certified gluten-free. Uh, certified gluten-free, you can be certified in a um, non-dedicated facility, but it's pretty hard. The dedicated gluten-free is you're actually being audited on an annual basis to show that all of your processes that you've put in place are able to prove that you have a safe product for somebody with celiac disease. And that is a label that is from a uh, private group that you're able to then put on your package. And of all of the gluten-free breweries in uh, the United States and even North America, there's only two that are certified gluten-free. Wow. Um, but most of those uh, breweries are dedicated just to reduce that risk of cross-contamination. Talk about some of the recent research related to gluten testing in beer. So there has been a few different studies into this. The, uh, the one that we are most familiar with is the research from Dr. Michelle Colgrave out of Australia. Um, Dr. Colgrave has studied what is the actual content of gluten in gluten-reduced and gluten-free beers, as well as regular uh, craft beers. And her research has shown that even if it's called gluten-reduced, it might actually have higher levels of the immunogenic sites that people are going to respond to than uh, regular beer that's not gluten-reduced at all. Um, and so that's one of the issues is gluten-reduced doesn't, because it doesn't remove any of these immunogenic sites necessarily, you actually might be creating a product that more people can react to. Uh, so she has taken a different stance and has started to look at liquid chromatography mass spectrometry in order to see how much gluten is remaining in the beer after this process. The previous uh, method was the competitive ELISA, competitive R5 ELISA assay. And that is a assay that has been approved by the ASPC to test for gluten, but it's based around the R5 protein, which is the rye-5 gluten protein. So it's the fifth gluten mo or molecule that has been associated with rye. And that's not necessarily going to be present in all types of grain that you're using. Uh, it's fairly common, even though it was found first in, in rye, it's fairly common in wheat and barley and other ones. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to be in every single type of gluten-containing product uh, and so that's one limitation, but the other big limitation with it is that it is not actually measuring the overall gluten content. It's measuring specifically for a region on the R5 gluten molecule. Um, and that specific region can be found on other gluten uh, molecules. So it's, it's not like it's not testing for anything, but it's a very focused test compared to what people can react to in the real world. 
Uh, so Dr. Colgrave has uh, been promoting this liquid chromatography mass spectrometry analysis. Uh, and what she really found was not only do different manufacturers of the ELISA test give different results, but it does fail in hydrolyzed food, which is fermented products. And the main failure is that disconnect between the antigenic sites where the ELISA is actually measuring and the immunogenic sites where people are having that immune response to. Um, there have been some other studies uh, validating those results in one way or another, uh, validating the R5 results, but they're not really validating that it's going to be accurately measuring the amount of gluten. They're just measuring, can it find gluten? Um, so some of the other studies that are out there are just saying, yeah, we put some gluten into a product and the R5 test was able to find it even after fermentation. That's not exactly a real world test for what people are going to be reacting to. And that's why people do have difficulty with these gluten reduced beers as uh, they continue along in their um, in their life, having more and more exposure to gluten just through everyday life. Um, so there have been some other more recent uh, articles that have been published. Uh, there was one fairly recently that came out of Spain that also found similar results. Um, this one came out in uh, 2021, and it was uh, based in the University of Basque Country. Um, and this article compared different commercial ELISA kits, and then they compared it to uh, near-infrared spectroscopy, or NIR, just because LCMS is kind of in its infancy still, and it's very expensive and difficult to do. That's one reason why the TTB and the FDA have not called for the LCMS to be the standard. Uh, even though it is very accurate, it is fairly expensive to run. Um, so there's some other kind of cheaper ones that are coming around that might work as well. NIR seems like it might be a possible one, um, but all of them agree that the ELISA kits are able to find some gluten, but it's not finding all of it, and it's not finding the parts that people are actually going to be reacting to and being sensitive to. Okay, so given the constraints you have at Holidayly where you don't want to bring any gluten into the facility, mm -hmm. what types of ingredients are on the table for you? Yeah, there's a surprising number of ingredients that you can use. Um, traditionally, gluten-free products uh, were made with syrups. So there's sorghum syrup, there's rice syrups, there's honey. Honey's gluten-free. Uh, all the candy syrups are gluten-free as well. Um, you can also use tapioca. There's tapioca syrups. There's also some alternatives that are not really grains. Uh, legumes, a lot of lentils, pea protein, those are gluten-free. Chestnuts, um, which are traditionally used in a, some Italian beers, those are gluten-free as well. And then maltodextrin, so long as it's from a non-glutinous source, uh, that can be gluten-free. So there's um, there's maltodextrin that has come from you know non-barley sources, such as uh, I think tapioca maltodextrin is the most common. Then there's uh, wheat, or sorry, then there's white. And sweet potatoes. Uh, sweet potatoes actually have a fair, fairly high amount of amylase as well. Um, so sweet potatoes are fairly common in gluten-free home brewing. Um, the problem with some of those alternatives is a lot of people with celiac also have comorbidity with other food allergies. And tree nuts and some legumes are pretty high on there. 
so for us, we even remove those as options as well. Um, we don't use any tree nuts or even dairy in our uh, finished product as well. Okay. Um, beyond that, there are some other gluten-free adjuncts. Uh, there's grains and seeds that you can use. There's a fairly wide variety of these. Uh, millet, buckwheat, and rice are by far the most common just because those are the ones that are being malted uh, in the U.S. So millet and buckwheat from grouse and rice from Eckert Malting, which is a dedicated uh, gluten-free malt house in California. Um, you can also get quinoa, uh, sorghum. You can get corn. Corn is gluten-free and there's malted corn as well. Uh, sunflower seed is gluten-free and you can get malted sunflower seed. And then there's also, and this is kind of new, um, amaranth and teff are starting to be experimented with, but those are very, very small seeds and they're harder to use. Uh, and then oats are gluten-free, um, but they might not be safe for everyone with celiac. Uh, actually, there's a significant portion of people with celiac disease who do react to oats, even if they're labeled gluten-free. So I assume you avoid those as well. Yeah, we don't use any oats um, just because for Hall Daily, our uh, ethos is to make it as safe for as many people as possible. So if you kind of view the beer drinking public as a pie chart, there's going to be between 5 and 10% of people who have some sort of negative reaction to gluten in some form. Uh, and that's not only people with celiac and Hashimoto's and gluten sensitivity, but that's people with like IBS. Right. Um, they tend to have more trouble with beer. They don't with our beer. So we try to expand the slice of pie um, on that pie chart to uh, be as close to 100% as possible. Um, so that's why we don't use any uh, tree nuts. That's why we don't, we don't use any dairy. That's why we don't use any soy. We're soy-free. Um, even though soy is also gluten-free, a large number of people with celiac disease are so sensitive to it. And we also don't use oats for that same reason. Um, there's been a couple times where we've made an exception for a product, uh, but that's brewed on our smaller system and we have a, a label warning it. Particularly, uh, we did a sandwich cookie pastry stout. Um, we used to call it by the brand name, uh, but we don't anymore. Uh, <laughs> but we have a sandwich. We've done a sandwich cookie pastry stout a couple of times and that sandwich cookie is made with oats. Uh, so we very, very boldly highlighted that that was a product that contained oats. Uh, and people were able to make that choice then. Um, but for the vast majority of our products, we we avoid all sorts of allergens uh, for people who can't have them. So we can expand that slice to get to 99, almost 100% of people can drink our beer and feel safe doing so. Coming up. So you can do this high temperature mash to gelatinization, but you can also add your heat stable enzymes to start the breakdown of those starches as they come into solution. And then we lower the temperature to hit a more traditional sacrification temperature. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. 
The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG and their partners HVG, who bring you the very best in German hops, including Amira, the latest from their hop breeding program. With its classic hoppy, slightly herbal, and zesty lemon aromas, it's the ideal hop for those looking to capture the traditional flavor of a classic German lager. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Grist Analytics is the leading quality and production control software platform built by and for craft brewers. The unique cloud-based application gives the unprecedented ability to capture data your way and correlate it across the brewery. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and track brewery performance while listening to this podcast. Grist Analytics helps you skip past hours of sorting through spreadsheets and paper logs to making informed decisions that drive efficiency and deliver better beer with confidence. GristAnalytics.com Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Ontario presents beers in the hop field at Bench Brewing Company in Beamsville, August 17th. The District St. Paul Minneapolis Summer Meeting is August 17th at Ecolab in St. Paul. District Carolinas has a summer technical meeting August 25th at Boonshine Brewing Company in Boone. The District Northern Illinois Summer Bash is August 25th at Crust Brewing in Rosemont. District Western New York is holding a summer meeting August 25th at Myers Creek Brewing Company. District Ontario's 80th anniversary golf tournament is September 8th at Springfield Golf and Country Club in Guelph. District Pittsburgh has a technical conference September 9th at Pittsburgh Brewing Company in Creighton. District Milwaukee meets at the Molson Coors Miller Inn September 21st. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids October 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join.
Now back to the show. Talk about the challenges that you have in your brewery uh, that most brewers probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. Um, something that some brewers might have a little bit of experience with is just the fact that we are using different size of grains. You have to have some adjustments to your equipment. Uh, mill gap setting is a big one. Uh, we have buckwheat, which is about half the size of a barley kernel. And then we have millet, which is about uh, an eighth the size of a barley kernel. And so we have to be able to mill those in such a way that we're able to still use it in a fairly traditional brewing process, uh, which means if we're going to be using a traditional infusion style mash vessel, uh, we need to be able to have that milled in such a way that it's still going to preserve the husk much like you would when you're doing a milling for a barley mash. Um, so having that different mill gap setting is probably the most relatable thing. But beyond that, the false bottom on your mash vessel, that's going to have to be different, differently sized or you're using a ton of uh, rice holes in order to keep back the finer particulate. Um, and so that's one big part of it. But beyond that is the malting ability of those grains as well. Because they have different sizes and different shapes, uh, you're going to have different malting ability from the get-go. Um, for example, millet is pretty spherical. It's fairly easy to malt. It's probably easier from a physical perspective than barley, which has that length and then you have an issue with hard ends or overly modified portions in the same kernel. Millet's more uniform from that side. Similar, uh, similarly, buckwheat is fairly uniform when it gets malted um, because it is a tetrahedral, or I, no, not tetrahedral, it's a it's a pyramid shape. Um, so yeah, tetrahedral pyramid. And so it is fairly uniform in how it gets malted, but rice is even longer than barley. So rice has more of a difficulty having uniform modification throughout the entirety of the grain. And you have a higher rate of hard ends or the equivalent of in rice. Um, so that physical shape changes everything from malting through uh, mashing. Um, some of the other issues are you're going to have varying degrees of friability because you're dealing with completely different grains all across the board. Um, so the entirety of your uh, certificate of analysis that you're getting from your maltster, you're going to have to get used to slightly different numbers being acceptable and also being aware that they're not going to be the same if you're doing a batch that has rice, buckwheat, and millet in there you're going to have different levels of each uh, of those categories in your COA. Um, and that's what you want based on the grain that you're using. Okay. All right. Let's hear, um, tell us about, um, let's talk about gelatinization temperatures because, um, you know, obviously you've got uh, a wide range of different um, grains that you've discussed here. And mm -hmm. I'm going to, it's, um, you know, we probably all know that they don't have necessarily the same gelatinization temperature, uh, which could create um, some some challenges in your process. T tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, I'll focus a little bit more just on millet and buckwheat because that's what we use at Hall Daily. Uh, and also to make it so that we're not discussing the hundreds of different things that we could be with uh, when it comes to gluten-free adjuncts. But 
Um, for millet and buckwheat, there is not only a difference between the two of them, but there's difference between is it malted or raw or unmalted. Uh, and then also for millet, there's several hundred types of millet. Uh, the most common one in the U.S. is white proso millet, but there's also red millet, which is very common in Africa and has been the basis for a lot of the beers out of there for centuries. Um, similarly, with buckwheat, there's different varieties, and that can change the gelatinization temperature, as well as if it's malted, it tends to have a slightly lower gelatinization temperature uh, versus unmalted. And so you have to deal with all of that when you're taking into account how you're going to mash with it. But you also have to take into account that the gelatinization temperature is typically higher than the uh, temperatures that the in, uh, the enzymes that are going to be in the grains themselves would be surviving at. So you typically have to not rely on the endogenous enzymes in the grain, which is the basis of barley brewing is you're focusing your mash temperatures to really accentuate what enzymes are doing what in that mash to get the finished product that you want, you know, drier, maltier, fuller, um, all these different things you control just by temperature in barley, you're going to have to ignore in gluten-free brewing for the most part, because you need to hit that gelatinization temperature to even free up those starches prior to gain the sacrification and getting those sugars broken down for the yeast to be able to consume. Um, for us, we use the millet and buckwheat, um, and we primarily use malts for millet and buckwheat, and both of those have different gelatinization temperatures. Buckwheat is somewhere around 175 to 180, and millet is somewhere around 170 to 175 in Fahrenheit. Um, and the enzymes in millet are fairly analogous to the enzymes that are in barley, but at 170, they're broken down. You can't really use them. Uh, so for all of this, not, you, you basically have to plan your mash out to either use as much of those enzymes earlier in the process when, before they get broken down, or you're relying solely on exogenous enzymes that you're adding to the mash. All right. Um, what do you want to say about sort of the, um, um, the different contributions of those grains? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of obviously you're getting totally different spectrum of, of starch and enzymes and proteins and, mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff. Um, talk about that. Yeah. There's a lot of minutia in here, but there's also a lot of things that are still waiting to be fully researched with barley. We have at this point close to 200 years of good, um, biological and chemical analysis on barley and its contributions to beer. We have a lot of really good, research on what the primary flavor active compounds are. And we're able to also tie those to certain things in like not only mass spec, but also just sensory analysis. We're able to say, if you taste this, this is the chemical and this is where it comes from in the brewing process. A lot of that basic research has not been done in gluten-free beer in part, just because a lot of these grains have not been available as malt for more than a decade or so or right. less. Yeah. Um, so for that, we don't have a full rundown on some of these things like starch content. We don't know what of the several hundred types of millet are going to be the ideal one for starch content. Um, we just know the ones that have been commonly bred for different uh, 
purposes in the U.S. White proso millet is a very common food source, not only in the U.S., but also in um, different Asian countries. And it's very common in uh, Europe as well, historically. So we have this food product, but that's not necessarily ideal for brewing. Uh, we just know that that's what the farmers are going to be able to plant and provide to the maltster. Um, Which is important because you have to be able to use something that you can actually get too, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas barley is almost bred exclusively for brewing. So you have the farmers making the barley for beer explicitly. We're getting food product um, that we are now trying to convert into a brewing product. Uh, but that also means that we don't really have a great handle on a lot of the enzymes. We do know that millet is fairly analogous and buckwheat has some of the similar enzymes, but we also don't know um, exactly what the content is and what the ideal uh, the ideal version of millet or buckwheat or even rice would be. Uh, we do have some kind of anecdotal evidence that has come out of a very robust homebrewing side for gluten-free brewing. Um, there's some very good amateur scientists that are doing gluten-free homebrewing and coming up with some uh, rough hierarchies between various types. Um, but the biggest thing that we're going to be dealing with, because we're talking about 100% adjunct brewing, is you're going to have different levels of proteins and yeast nutrients that are going to really impact your fermentations and things like head retention. Uh, millet does not have the greatest amount of proteins for head retention. Buckwheat is better, but buckwheat has less of the yeast nutrients that are going to be necessary for yeast health. Um, and then there's things like rice. Rice has different flavor active compounds. Uh, particularly, you can get a wintergreen celery flavor from rice, especially if you're um, not able to fully break that down in your mash. And then on top of all of that, because we're talking about trying to make something that's safe for as many people as possible, some of these have allergens, uh, chestnuts being a big one. There are gluten-free beers that are made with chestnuts and some of these other products, but many people with celiac disease can't have that because they're going to be reacting to that tree nut allergy that is comorbid with celiac disease. So all of these different products, you have to kind of pick and choose and potentially increase uh, some of the other products that you would consider for barley beers, uh, like yeast nutrients. You have to maybe add more yeast nutrient. And it's almost like you're balancing between making beer and seltzer in that you're going to be having to add things in that you would normally just are assuming are in your beer, um, similar to how you would with a seltzer. Okay. All right. So um, you've already you know, said that you use a lot of... Um buckwheat and millet so um we, we can kind of focus on on those i guess but what are your various options for processing these grains in your brew house you know give us some examples of the different techniques that you're using sure um for us we have a couple different brew houses we have a relatively new one barrel pilot system uh, for that, we have a custom false bottom that is a little bit finer just to hold back our finer grains, millet being so much smaller. Um, we want to be able to hold that back and be able to use the husk as its own filter bed, uh, similarly to how you would when you're using barley in a mash tun. Um, so for that, we do have a pretty common setup. It's an off-the-shelf uh, pilot system that just has that custom false bottom. 
Um, and that's very similar to our original brewery, which is a 10 barrel pub system, two vessel pub system. Uh, for that, we have the mash tun with another custom false bottom. This one was one that, uh, Karen, our owner, um, she designed with CSU, uh, back before we opened in order to have it be the best possible, uh, false bottom for our grains in particular for millet and buckwheat. Um, and because of these custom false bottoms, we actually don't use any rice holes. Uh, we're able to get really good separation and extraction from our mash tun um, using this false bottom as the primary means of separation. Uh, that said, neither of these systems is going to be the most efficient. Um, a pub system is not going to be the most efficient way to get the highest yield from your grains. And so for our production system, which is just across the road from our tap house, uh, the production system is actually a mash press system. And the reason we went with that was because even though we're using malts, our malts are going to be somewhere on the order of three to eight times more expensive than barley. Um, so our base malts start above $3 a pound. And that is because of uh, the there's not this large infrastructure surrounding um, gluten-free grains for malting. And so there's just less of a, um, because there's less of a buildup of that industry, the costs have not been reduced due to that scaling quite yet. Uh, so we really need to be able to get the most wort possible from our grains. And so we really needed to have a mash press when we scaled up uh, to our production facility back in 2019. Uh, for our mash press, we do get similar to barley. We get about 20 to 25% more yield for the same amount of grains. And that has really helped us to uh, figure out some recipes that we're able to scale up and get out the door at a reasonable price for consumers. You haven't talked a lot about your, your mashing strategy, uh, mm -hmm. which may be varies between those different systems or maybe not. I don't know. Um, but um, you mentioned earlier that you're going to have to focus on the gelatinization temperature and then mm -hmm. um you know lose a lot of the enzyme on the way um and it sounds like reading between the lines it sounds like you probably have a, a pretty significant arsenal of exogenous uh enzymes to add as well so why don't you talk about sort of um you know your strategy on those different systems if it is different um you know for your mashing process yeah uh, there's a few different mashing processes that have been developed for gluten-free specifically. Uh, a lot of homebrewers still just use an isothermal mash um, where they're just adding the grains and they're trying to find a temperature that's going to be the most beneficial. Uh, but that is not going to necessarily get you the greatest yield. Uh, that's something that really was where gluten-free brewing started with once these grains were really being experimented with on the homebrewing level about 20, 30 years ago. Um, and we've moved away from that just because it is so inefficient. You can add enzymes to that, but even the exogenous enzymes that you have to add have different ideal temperatures. And so you're not really doing the best use of either the grains or the enzymes you're adding. Um, it is totally possible to do, though, uh, and it is an easy entry point because it's the most familiar to brewers. Uh, there's a much more involved method. It's called the decantation method. Um, this was developed almost 15 years ago. 
Um, and it's fairly complex, but it does use the endogenous enzymes, particularly in millet. And it's a, it's almost like a, a version of a decoction mash. But what you're trying to do instead of um, raise the temperature is you're trying to preserve the enzymes. So the decantation method is you mash at a lower temperature with a fairly thick mash in order to get as much of the enzymes extracted from the millet. And this typically happens overnight. So you have a low temperature mash that you're just letting the grain soak for as long as possible and get as many of those enzymes into solution and intact. Then you um, extract that wort and you put it in a fridge. Then you do a second mash that is higher temperature with additional grains to gelatinize the starches in those grains that you're now adding. Once you have that gelatinization done, you cool that mash down and add back in the enzymes that you preserved from that overnight mash, and you're able to then get a fairly high yield mash um, in terms of sugar extraction, but you're only using the enzymes that are in the grain. Uh, this creates a fairly one-dimensional product, though, because you're only using millet, and it's not going to really have that much uh, availability to really try and mimic more traditional beer styles because you're only using one style of grain, and you really have to use as much base malt as possible in this in order to get all of the sugars you need. Um, so that is a method, and it's actually one that's getting to be a little bit more common in home brewing, but it's very difficult to scale that up to commercial brewing. Uh, because you're dealing with an overnight mash, you're tying up your system for a long period of time. Uh, and also that second mash has to go longer as well because you're not using all of your enzymes uh, to full effect. So you have that higher temperature gelatinization, you drop the temperature, then you do your mash and it takes a long rest to get as much of the sacrification to happen as possible. Um, so it's a totally functional process. It's just not commercially viable for most people. Uh, so really, for commercial brewing, there's two primary ways that people do this. Um, the first is a rising step mash, and this particularly benefits if you're using rice malt uh, because it helps to break down some of those other flavor compounds that might be less than ideal in a finished product. Uh, for a rising step mash, what you're doing is you're going to be adding enzymes, uh, so exogenous enzymes, and trying to hit temperatures to optimally use those enzymes. So this is similar to like a, uh, a German style step mash where you're starting really low and then you're adding enzymes in and hitting those step points versus in a German style step mash or, or uh, decoction mash. What you're trying to do is you're trying to hit specific enzymes in the barley. Um, so similarly, you might be doing like an acid rest. Uh, you might be doing a sacrification rest. Um, all these different rests you're doing, but you're basing it on the exogenous enzyme temperatures instead of the endogenous ones. Uh, this is also fairly conducive to using what we like to call the Mack truck enzymes. Uh, there's some enzyme blends that have been developed for barley, uh, particularly for distilling, that basically have every enzyme that barley would have in malting or mashing all combined into one liquid that you can add. And that way you're able to finish out the mashing process on some of these grains. That's why it's particularly beneficial to rice is you can add in these enzymes that basically help the rice finish its mashing process and reduce the incidence of hard ends and things like that. Um, 
and then you continue rising it up and you actually are hitting gelatinization later, but you can add some enzymes that help to reduce the gelatinization temperature. Uh, so this is the most common method in commercial gluten-free brewing is this rising step mash. And that's in part because it's fairly easy to wrap your head around and it's fairly easy to hit the temperatures that the enzymes need. Um, it is fully functional in a commercial brewing process and it is able to use a wide variety of grains. Um, for Hall Daily, we use the other common method, and that's because we are only using millet and buckwheat. We're really able to hit temperatures based around those. Uh, so we use a falling step mash where you go in higher at uh, the gelatinization temperature of buckwheat. So somewhere between 175, 180 Fahrenheit or like 80 Celsius. Um, you go in higher there, do your gelatinization tip or step, and you could also at that point add some higher level uh, or some higher temperature enzymes. A lot of exogenous enzymes are geared towards distilling. So they have um, different kinds of amylases and different proteases that are more heat stable than are what are found naturally occurring in things like barley. Um, so you can do this high temperature mash to gelatinization, but you can also add your heat stable enzymes to start the breakdown of those starches as they come into solution. And then we lower the temperature to hit a more traditional sacrification temperature. In our case, we're still going higher than you would in uh, traditional brewing. And that's because, again, we have enzymes that are able to, to hit that higher temperature. Um, so instead of being like 150 uh, to 160 Fahrenheit, we're going about 160 to 170. Um, and then adding our enzymes in there. And then we're able to raise it back up for knockout. Um, this is the fastest method because you're really hitting only two steps and you're hitting them to explicitly extract that sugar. Um, and it works very quickly on our mash press system to do this. Uh, our mash press system has constant has a constant impeller spinning in the mash vessel. So it's constantly being stirred. And a lot of these enzymatic processes happen fairly quickly as a result. How are you actually doing the cooling? I mean, does that, is it just, are you just using the, you know, the ambient uh, temperature to, to let it fall? Or are you actually cooling that mash? Uh, both, depending on our system. That's one thing that you have to be very explicit about if you're going to be doing gluten-free brewing is basing it around the capabilities of your brew system. Um, and that's one reason why we can do a falling mash on our mash press is we can add cold water very easily and in a very controlled manner to our mash in order to get that temperature to drop quickly. And because we're constantly stirring it, we're not worried about having that, um, that we're not worried about having a grain bed for filtration because the mash press will take care of that. Uh, so we are able to get it cool quickly. But on our other systems where we have more of a traditional mash ton, we do just have to rely on ambient temperature dropping for the most part. Uh, we can add some cool water, but we don't really want to disturb that um, that mash bed because we will need that to separate out the grains later. Um, so yeah, we kind of do both. And that's one big change with our new system is we were able to really optimize it for our process. Do gluten-free beers have a different shelf life versus standard beers? Shelf life is going to be based primarily on the same factors that are going to be impacting barley. Um, so a big one is hops being oxygenated to create staling off flavors. Um, and that does not really change because we're still dealing with malted product that has hops added to it. 
Uh, so really, for the most part, when it comes to our process changes, the biggest process is all in the mash. And then from then on, it's fairly standard process and some of the same concerns come up. Um, one of the differences is going to be hay stability, though, because we are dealing with different proteins by design. We're going to have different haze uh, forming proteins. They might be similar to ones in barley. Some of them might even be the same family of proteins, uh, but it's not necessarily going to be reacting the same way. Um, so, for example, we have tried using some of the clarifying enzymes explicitly for their, their original intent of clarification, and they don't seem to do as much. Um, that is different with some of the other gluten-free brewers are using different grains, but for us, it doesn't have as much of an impact as we would have hoped. Uh, we do use uh, silica gel for the most part um, in order to clarify our beers, but centrifuges would work and um, and plate and frame or candle filters, that all would work as well. It's just fine-tuning what exactly our... Um, what exactly the filters need to be in order to remove the specific haze-forming molecules we have. Um, similarly, though, some of the things are designed around removing uh, protein, and um, some of the some of the things are based around removing other haze-forming com haze, haze compounds. Uh, don't necessarily have the same effect similarly um, to the enzymes. I know some gluten-free brewers have experimented with PVPP and other things, but we just haven't. Um, so there's different issues with haze stability in product just because of the different proteins. Uh, I was wondering if you might not have improved shelf life just because, you know, um, less free amino nitrogen like available in the finished product. Oh, okay. Um, I was thinking that, per I don't know, but I was just thinking that yeah. perhaps you might actually have a, um, a more stable product than standard beer in some cases. You know, you would hope so, but for um, millet, millet actually has fairly analogous uh, levels of fan. So for us, we we have pretty similar um, yeast nutrients because we're mainly using millet. Okay. Uh, the main thing we do add is a little bit more zinc, um, and we we have shied away from other um, we've shied away from other yeast nutrients because most of those have soy in them oh okay um so that's a limitation is we have to be very explicit about all of the ingredients we're adding even ones that are more of those secondary ingredients just because we need to make sure that that secondary ingredient isn't going to cause an allergic reaction for any of our consumers um talk about the limitations and any and any strategies you employ in regards to foam stability you know we already mm -hmm. mentioned that that's going to be an issue uh, you know what do you do to make to you know give it the best shot you got yeah there's a couple things that you can do um we do for most of our beers add a small amount of buckwheat still uh we used to add much higher amounts because buckwheat is more analogous to wheat uh, whereas millet is more analogous to barley. So adding some buckwheat has similar benefits in terms of haze, um, st stable haze. So like a permanent stable haze, like a wit beer, uh, as well as having some of that higher levels of um, foam stability. But that's not a guarantee. Uh, and then there's also, you can use some 
raw ingredients. There's unmalted millet and unmalted buckwheat. Uh, those are a little bit more haze stabilizing, similar to how if you add unmalted barley to a beer, you can get some more um, more stable foam. Uh, the There are a few other things that you can do. One is trying to reduce the amount of proteolytic enzymes that you're adding because you do have more control of the enzymes that you're adding. If you're not adding anything that breaks down proteins, you have a better chance of getting that um, stable foam in your finished product. Uh, similarly, you can add more cell wall digesting enzymes to free up some more of those foam beneficial um, ingredients in your beer. Uh, so there's some things you can do process-wise like that. Um, there's a few other things. We have a proprietary process uh, that we use as well um, that I can't really get into, but we, we do have very, very stable foam by using some of those other techniques and then our own proprietary process. Uh, and then one other thing that some people do see, um, which makes some degree of sense, is if you're using some more roasted grains, you can get some more head as well, uh, similar to what you see in like a um, a stout. Uh, we when, For our stout, we don't need to do nearly as much because it's going to be having a wide variety of grains going into it. And those different levels of different types of grains help to contribute to the head more. Okay, cool. Um, any special considerations in regards to yeast health? Um, we've already talked about mm -hmm. the challenges of like, you know, getting, um, getting yeast to begin with, but, um, do you have any additional challenges to, um, in terms of repitching yeast? Uh, for repitching yeast where we are able to do it, the biggest limitation for us is a lot of the dry yeasts that we use are, um, dry yeast tend to be less receptive to repitching beyond like five generations. Um, we don't do a whole lot of repitching right now just because we are a fairly small operation. Uh, and for us, we're able to get what we need from new packs of yeast. Uh, we've done some experimentation with it and it holds up similar to uh, what we've seen in barley-based brewer's experiences of just dry yeast tends to not be able to go quite as long as some of the liquid yeast crops. Um, so that is one issue. The other issue is, depending on the grains you're using, you might have issues with uh, yeast health. One of the big ones being, if we're using more buckwheat, uh, we're not going to have as much fan. Um, similarly, if we're using rice, we might not. Uh, so there's different grains have different contributions to yeast health. And we just have to kind of take into account what we are building our recipe around a little bit more explicitly than you would in more traditional brewing. That was Alan Winhausen here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you want to learn more, check the show notes for a direct link to Alan's district presentation. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Developed as part of Carrie's Eco Brewing Range, Biofine Eco is a plant based fining. You gotta agent. start over. I know! What is wrong with me today? <laughs>
damn it. <laughs> all right. All right.